This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to a special edition of Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. My name is Kev Lotch and I'm joined by Ian Todd. Today we're not in a studio, we're in a field. Ian, where are we? <laughs> uh, yeah, we are indeed in a field. We're at uh, Jodrell Bank for the uh, Blue Dot Festival, which is in its second year. It's a whole weekend of uh, camping and scientific talks and uh, music and culture and art and all sorts of wonderful things. And Ian, what is that giant metal contraption about 200 metres away from us? <laughs> I believe that's the uh, Lovell Telescope, the famous Lovell Telescope, uh, Kev. The third largest radio telescope in the world. Isn't it wonderful? It's absolutely fantastic. What a backdrop. Ian, why are we here? We are here to talk to uh, various people and um, basically soak up the... the festival atmosphere and here talks about the origins of the universe so we've been behind the scenes uh talking to some of the scientists giving lectures at this year's festival exactly yeah um we've heard uh from anna banaldi who's working on the square kilometer array which is going to kind of peer deep into the past and look at the origins of the universe and um, we've heard from anna scaife uh, about giant radio galaxies which are um basically galaxies that are almost too big to see um, and we've also um, spoken to uh, Chris Parks uh, of the Large Hadron Collider about um, the recent discovery, recent discovery uh, of a new uh, type of particle. Um, Mark McCorkran from ESA spoke to him uh, about the upcoming Bepi Colombo mission. We just had that media day. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, and perhaps, well, perhaps most exciting was uh, uh, Catherine Joy, who um, spoke to us about uh, meteor hunting in, in Antarctica, which is... Um, it was very cool, literally and figuratively. <laughs> I 
Um, but first, we, uh, we you're going to hear all of those uh, interviews in a bit. But first, we spoke to Tim O'Brien, who's the Associate Director of Jodrell uh, Bank, um, about the festival and about the work they do here. So I'm sitting with Tim O'Brien, the Associate Director of Jodrell Bank in Cheshire. Thank you for joining me. That's okay. Um, we are at the second Blue Dot Festival. Hmm. We're on our second day. How's it been for you so far? Oh, it's been really good, I think. Um, we, uh, it's been hectic, of course. It's, you, you find yourself floating around with your brain sort of slowly turning to mush. But they thought the whole thing's been, uh, been amazing. I mean, really uh, tried to catch some of the activities here because when you, when you sort of organizing it behind the scenes you can imagine it gets a bit gets a bit busy and a mm. bit hectic so you've got to find the time to chill out and see some of the see some of the events so uh i think left field was spectacular last night really really enjoyed enjoyed them and then uh we had uh, this amazing projection on the Lovell telescope i don't know whether you caught any of it that was using reinterpreting live data coming from a receiver on the telescope and then projecting it back onto the telescope uh, so that was that was incredible. That's amazing. How do they transform that data? Into oh, well, that's the, the, mag the magic of our Japanese artist that we're working with, a, a guy called Daito Manabi, who's uh, who's a, a, an amazing uh, artist, but also an amazing programmer as well. So he's the fastest Python programmer in the world that I've seen. He just <laughs> over his laptop. So he's basically taking... We're streaming him data coming right off the telescope, and he's turning that into a both a visual piece and he's colleague Satsuya is turning it into a, an audio piece that we're playing and actually the, the, the audience can control it so they can tune through the spectrum that's being received and that changes in real time what's on the telescope so it's unusual to be able to control a 90 meter high radio telescope in that way. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Blue Dot Festival? What is it about? What is mm. uh, its kind of aims here? Yeah I mean we um, for, for, for a long time, I've been interested in, um, you know, public engagement with, with, with research for, for, for many years. And uh, I actually worked with uh, um, Therese Randerson, who's the director of the Discovery Centre, the public side of the site here. Um, I happen to be Therese's husband as well, so it's a bit of a family uh, operation. <laughs> we wanted to reach out to people who might not otherwise consider coming to Jodrell. So there's been a visitor centre here since the mid-60s. We've had millions of visitors come here over the years. Now we have 180,000 visitors a year. But there's always this sort of worry that you're preaching to the converted, that people who come and visit you are the ones who are already interested in science and they want to find out more. That's fine. We do lots of stuff for people like that. But it's getting to the people who might not ever have considered coming that we were interested in. So this idea of putting both a music festival alongside science and art, you pull in people who are interested in all these things, and it emphasises that science is part of culture. It it's really not, is. It's not a completely different thing. It, it intersects with all these other areas. Now, of course, we are sitting in the shadow of the uh, Lovell Telescope here at Jodrell Bank. It's a couple mm. of hundred metres away from us. Can you tell us what kind of work you do here on a daily basis when we're not all enjoying uh, <laughs> science talks and music acts? Well, I mean, that... Um there is a receiver on the telescope right now. It's pointed straight upwards, as you, as you can see. It's uh, pointed more or less at the zenith directly overhead um, because actually we're doing a little bit of maintenance work. We, we often do big maintenance jobs in the summer when the days are longer, mm. so there's more opportunities to work on the telescope. So it is parked up at the moment, so you know we're not steering it around looking at individual sources, but we do have a radio receiver on right now, yep. and we are collecting data. And, of course, as the Earth turns, this patch of sky that we're looking at directly overhead... It drifts past the overhead the telescope. So you end up seeing this big strip of sky all the way around. It's mm. a drift scan. 
That data we're looking at, we're looking for, um, there's some pulsars, so remnants of exploded stars, spinning remnants of exploded stars that drift through the beam and we can time the flashes from the pulsars. But we're also looking for these weird things called fast radio bursts, which are a relatively recent discovery. Um, sorry, very brief flashes of radio waves um, coming, with, we're pretty sure, from the distant universe, so, so many millions, if not billions of light years away. Um, and really, we have no idea what they are. They, they flash, and it la that flash lasts a fraction of a second. It must be something very small for it to be so brief, uh, because the light travel time across the object would smear it out. Um, probably some sort of explosion, or perhaps something dropping into a black hole, something like that. But we found uh, there's around about 20 of them been found over the last uh, uh, five to 10 years. And uh, yeah, so we're just looking out for these unusual things just while we're doing the work on the telescope. And of course, it is uh, a radio telescope. It's not operating in isolation, though. If I'm correct, it's part of the E-Merlin network. It's like seven radio telescopes around, is it the country, the world? Yeah, it's around. So those those E-Merlin, yeah, you're right, say, is, is up to seven radio telescopes. Mm -hmm. So there's the Lovell, there's the Mark II telescope, which is just beyond the hedge there, uh, over, over the camping field, um, which is a big telescope in itself, and it just gets... It sort of disappears, sadly disappears into obscurity <laughs> when it's next to the Lovell Telescope. But that's an amazing instrument in itself. There's another five about that size, about mm. 25 metres, 30 metres in diameter, spread around across England. And the Lovell is 76? 76 metres, yeah. So they're, so they're about a third the diameter. So square that, roughly 10 times less collecting area. So the Lovell dominates in terms of power, in terms of collecting area. But these other telescopes spread between here and Cambridge... Um, all connected back to Jodrell Bank by optical fibres. Mm -hmm. So they all effectively work as a single telescope. So they're like seven bits of a giant 217-kilometre-wide telescope. And the bigger you make your telescope, the sharper the view you get. So you, you effectively zoom in and see the fine detail. So with E-Merlin, with a, with a radio telescope the size of E-Merlin, 217 kilometres across, mm -hmm. we basically get the same sharpness of detail as the Hubble Space Telescope gets in the optical. And the Hubble Space Telescope, of course, has to be flown above the atmosphere to avoid blurring. So, so that's its key. It's a, it's a sort of really key, uh, unique, actually, in the world, that instrument, to get that level of resol resolution in the radio part of the spectrum. I get, one thing you mentioned with Hubble just there is that it has to be flown above the Earth to get those views. Yeah. I mean, with a radio telescope, presumably you have to take measures to prevent interference. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, um, well... In terms of measures to present interference, what you're right, there's, there's increasingly large uses of the radio spectrum. Um, so whether it be for mobile phones, remote CCTV systems, airport radars, there's loads of ways in which we use the, the radio spectrum. And radio astronomers sort of compete for that, really, with everybody mm. else. The, sort of, the sad thing for radio astronomers is we can't really afford to pay for the radio spectrum in the same way as a lot of these commercial users can. So there are little bits of the radio spectrum that are protected for radio astronomy use, and they really are only little narrow bits. They're like national parks for radio astronomers <laughs> that are protected. So there's a few of those. There's one near the hydrogen line. Yep. There's, there's a very famous uh, emission line due to atomic hydrogen in space around about a wavelength of 21 centimetres that's, that's protected, and there are then there are some others, um, but they're always un, under pressure. So what we do is, um, in the case of Jodrell, you know, historically, we're here because Bernard Lovell, who started the observatory at the end of the Second World War, moved away from the city of Manchester to get away from radio interference, came to the country mm -hmm. where there were less people, right? And that's why, that's why we are here. Obviously, over the years since, 
there's more and more people, uh, you know, more and more activity, yes, human activity in this region. And so the interference levels have grown. So we're always in that sort of battle, if you like, to try and reduce the level of, of uh, activity in, in, in the region. Um, we take a hit, actually, at Blue Dot for interference. Yes. Deliberately, uh, because we, we balance up the benefit of promoting the science and all the other activities we do here against a weekend of increased inter increased radio interference. And we've decided that for, at that level, given that we're otherwise working 365 days a year, 20, 24 hours a, a day, it's worth, it's worth a weekend for the benefits it brings us. Yes, because I hadn't realised until you said that you were still collecting data right now. Yeah. I, I, because um, I've seen the signs about yeah. uh, mobile phones being yeah. offset radio car, I had thought that it, it would just shut down for that one weekend, but... Well, we'll do, we, we basically, we will always collect data and we'll do what we can with that data. There's undoubtedly greater interference this mm. weekend than there would normally be with all these people here. You know, there's 10,000 people on site um, and, you know, there's an amnesty on mobile phones, for example, this, this weekend. So, but the, the Mark II telescope is operating. I can see it over there. It's pointing south. It's pointing away from us. So it's away from okay. most <laughs> of the interference in this case. Um, but, yeah, um, it's... Uh, it's the level that's probably most subject to it because uh, when it's operating as a single dish, it's also it's it's not got the advantage of um, the sort of distributed nature of the array that we have in email and that allows us to reject some of the interference, local interference, because it's not present in all the telescopes. So the level's most subject because it's most powerful and because it often operates as a single dish. But yeah, we're we're continuing to observe. Um, now, one last thing I want to ask you is obviously we're at the um, the Blue Dot Festival, mm. which takes its name from the Power Blue Dot image, yeah. um, captured by the Voyager mission. It's in its 40th year; it's still going. And in a, in a mission of so many firsts, I want to ask you, what's its best legacy? What's it? Voyager. It, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such an expansive mission, and one which is yeah. literally rewrote textbooks. Yeah, you you look a bit younger than me. I'm not sure how old you are, but I but I, I remember. You know, I remember the Voyager images coming back. You mm. know, I was born in 1964, so Voyager was launched in 77, so I was 13 when Voyager was launched. Um, and, we, and we started to get these data back through the late 70s and in, into the 80s. So I remember those, those first images of, of, of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, the discovery of the volcanoes on, on Io and things like this. I mean... You know, it's easy to forget, I think, when we are living in the era of Juno orbiting Jupiter and, in fact, uh, on Monday flying over uh, the Great Red Spot on Jupiter. It's going to be... I'm sure it's going to produce some spectacular images. And Cassini has mm. been orbiting Saturn for, for years now, about to be crashed into... It's uh, final the, plunge. It's final plunge in September. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to forget that there was a time not that long ago when we didn't have any of that. Mm. And that, I think, for me, that's what... That's one of the key things that... Uh, that Voyager did was to produce those first uh, beautiful close-up images of those of those planets, of Saturn's rings, of the moons, um, and I suppose you know for blue, for Blue Dot, one of the obviously one of the key things is Carl Sagan's uh, request to to turn um, Voyager one to look back at the Earth and take that photograph from a distance of six billion kilometres um, of the Earth, and the Earth comes out as this tiny fraction of a pixel, uh, you know, and it, that whole idea that the Earth is a speck in space, we're all on it, everyone we've ever known, everyone we've ever loved, everyone who ever, has ever lived is on this tiny fraction of a pixel, mm. and, and how we 
need to remember that that's important and how we need to not only look after each other but protect the planet. Sitting there, this sort of spaceship Earth uh, concept is, is something that inspired us here for Blue Dot. It's such a contrast as well, that image, to the blue marble of the Apollo, mm. where the Earth is so dominant. <laughs> and you look at it in a palpable dot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, you know, even that was, you know, the, remember, think back, you know, the first, this, the first thing this telescope did in 1957, 60 years ago, it's the 60th anniversary of Lovell this year, um, the first thing it did was to track the rocket that carried Sputnik into space, you know, the first artificial satellite, the first pictures of the Earth from space were, were only possible once we had these satellites. It's not actually that long, you know, we're sitting in the presence of something that was there at the time, collecting those first signals from, from space and those first pictures you know, of the Earth as a, as a globe and, you know, the oceans and the clouds and so on, that blue marble picture, you know, I think changed radically the way people think about the, about the planet. We didn't have access to that. We're so used to seeing these amazing pictures from space. It's easy to, easy to forget that that's all happened within the last uh, several decades. Well, hopefully Blue Dot and the talks you've got going on here in the workshops will help people to continue to change the way they think about the planet. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here at the Blue Dot Festival with uh, Anna Bonaldi, who is a uh, cosmologist working with the uh, Square Kilometre Array. Thanks very much for t taking the time to speak to me. Thank you. I I've just uh, listened to your amazing talk, um, which was kind of about, really about um, how we can understand more about the, the beginning of the universe, which, which sounds quite epic. Uh, can you explain how, how that's possible? Well, actually, um, the universe did evolve a lot through its history from the Big Bang to now, and it left us several clues that we can follow. Uh, it is very difficult to understand uh, because it's it's very distant and it's a very long time, but indeed we have this, this trail of, of crumbs that we can follow. Uh, one of that is the cosmic background, the first light that the universe emitted, but also we can study all the galaxies and the stars, and in particular, the position that they occupy in space, because it is the evolution and the, and the forces that act between the structures that is actually uh, deciding what the structure, the large-scale structure will look like. Mm -hmm. So, um we're going to be able to do this with the square kilometer array. Now, what exactly is that? And how does it differ from, say, an ordinary optical telescope that someone might have in their back garden? Okay, so there are two main differences. So first, this is a radio telescope. It's not an optical telescope. It means it looks at the kind of light that our eyes are not able to see. It is a much lower energy light, it is similar uh, to what uh, we could look with an infrared camera, but even less energy than that. Uh, so they said basically there is probably more energy in a, in a snowflake than on all the radiation collected by radio telescopes so far. So this is to, to tell, just to tell how low energy that radiation is, but it is able to travel very far very, very far and come to us from very, very far in, in, uh, in the history of the universe. So that's a good thing. And then the, the second reason why it is different is because it's much, much bigger. Uh, so the normal telescopes are very much bigger than those that we can have in the garden. And this one in particular is going to be constituted by initially 200 antennas for the mid-array and uh, 
when it will be, will be completed, it will be some thousands of antennas. So it's really a massive project, and it will gonna be equivalent of having a telescope with actually an aperture, a collecting area of one square kilometer. So like if your telescope, the circle of your telescope was one square kilometer in area. So very, very big. <laughs> and um, they're going to be built in the in South Africa and Australia, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Why, why have those locations been chosen? Those locations have been selected uh, because of practical reasons uh, initially, uh, which is they are radio quiet. So there aren't a lot of radio emissions nearby. That is going to be a very disturbing signal for our purposes. So this is one of the selection criteria. Um, also, these two countries are participating to the projects and therefore they sort of um, submitted an application actually for their sites to, to, be, to be chosen. And uh, mm, they were both so good that we couldn't decide between them. And since we are going to build two arrays, we decided the best thing was to use both of them. They host uh, some uh, radio telescope already, so these sites are good now, but also will be preserved. They're going to be radio quiet zones for decades to come. Ah, so we'll have a nice, quiet, uh, quiet setting in which, in which to observe. Absolutely, because it's, it's going to cost a lot of money. So if, uh, if when we finish deploying the antennas, they decide to put a, a radio station there, it's going to be a lot of a problem. So we basically went for areas where there already was some agreement, because there are radio telescopes there, that basically no one is going to build anything disturbing our science. And in fact, it is a, a desert area. So not one close to any city. So it is a reasonable request, let's say, to say, please don't broadcast any radio there. I think one of the most mind-blowing things with regard to trying to discover what happened at the early stages of the universe is, is the idea that we can, we can almost look back in time, can't we? The, the, the farther we look, the... the the farther in the past we look, is, is yes. that correct? I'm very pleased that you that you were <laughs> listening carefully to the talk. So yes, since, since light travels at some speed, which is not an infinite velocity, when we look very, very far, for a galaxy very far, we look at, at as it was in the past. You have to take into account how much time did take to the light to arrive to us. Uh, so uh, if we were able to spot a very, very distant galaxy, hundreds of light years away, we would look at it as it was when the, the universe was very different and still the galaxies were um, newborn and forming and not the same as we observe today. So this is very important to understand the evolution of the universe. So our aim is really indeed to look very deep. It is difficult to spot them. They are very small, they are very faint. But if we can do that, it is a photograph of, of, of the universe in the past. We can make a movie, basically, of the history of the universe. Is it actually at least theoretically possible that we would be able to see the Big Bang occurring? Could, could, could we look that far back? Unfortunately not. The CMB is, a, is the, the first thing that we can observe. It has been mapped already by, by satellites. The latest one was the Planck satellite. Unfortunately, before the Big Bang, there isn't light produced. And it is light that we are able to see. We can't reach out there in any other way. And we can, of course, model. We can have models of what might have happened to go from the Big Bang to the cosmic background, and there are those models, but there isn't any earlier light that we will actually be able to measure, unfortunately. Okay, and I think perhaps one of the, one of, one of the other most interesting and exciting things is the idea that we might be able to, with, this, with the Square Kilometre Array, pick up uh, artificial uh, signals from, from other planets. If there were 
if there was intelligent life on other planets? Mm, yes, absolutely. So if uh, if from some other planet they pointed at Earth, we are actually broadcasting around a lot of artificial signals with our satellites, with our uh, TV transmissions, etc., etc. So it, it is... Uh, very different this kind of signal from a natural one because it has complicated patterns so it, it wouldn't be difficult actually to understand that it is really a technological civilization and you know what we plan to do with the with the ska is to also look for that the difficulty is that there are a lot of planets you have first to find suitable solar systems and then to look for uh, plausible planets, rocky planets, and things like that. And then you have to point there. And the, the probability to actually hit in the right one seems to be quite low. But nonetheless, it is one of the main objectives is actually for looking for uh, external planets, for planets with the um, possibility to host life, and indeed also for artificial signals coming from them. That would be an astonishing discovery <laughs> indeed. Definitely. So when can we expect the first data? Well, uh, we, the telescope uh, will be uh, operational, we expect, uh, around uh, 2024, taking the first scientific uh, data. Um, the, the various uh, um, people in the science community interested in using the telescope will apply for telescope time, uh, as, uh, as is normal. And uh, there will be several projects We require a lot of hours, which means uh, they will be carried on through several years. So we will have the first results on those projects that are the more traditional ones, that they require short time, most, almost immediately. But to have the answer for the biggest and most ambitious project of the SKA, we need to wait some years, because indeed they need to accumulate a lot of data. This is something different uh, that this telescope has from those currently operating, that you are planning those very big key science projects that are going to accumulate thousands of hours of the telescope before releasing data. It, it, it seems like a long time to wait for, for um, people who aren't astronomers like myself, but, uh, but I'm, I'm sure it it'll is, be worth it. It is uh, very short uh, compared to, to the timescale of the universe. <laughs> so we, we need to be a little patient. But yes, I think I, I am very impatient myself to, to see this first data. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to it. Th thank you very much for talking to me, Anna. Thank you. So I'm joined now by Catherine Joy from the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Manchester, and she's also an Antarctic meteorite hunter. So thank you for taking the time to join me. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I just want to start by asking in quite a basic question, why meteorites? What's, what's so good about them? What can they tell us about the solar system? That's a pretty good place to start because meteorites do tell us about the start of the solar system. So they tell us about the solar system's origins, how we started to build up the small bodies like asteroids that then got bigger and bigger when they collided to turn into planets. And they tell us about all the different types of geological and physical processes in between. So we can study different types of meteorites. There are many varieties. They come in all different shapes, colours, sizes from different parts of the asteroid belts. We even have some fabulous ones from Mars and Moon as well. But the ones that come from the asteroid belts tell us about you know, different snapshots. So when those bodies were growing, if they never really collided, if they remained primitive, so pretty much all the dust that would have been first formed around the early sun when it got stuck together, and that tells us about the age of the solar system and, and the sun through that, um, right through to how the collisions then grew those bodies and 
then geological processes, so volcanism, impact cratering, you know, fundamental big-scale processes that, short of sending lots of spacecraft to visit the asteroid belts, we wouldn't be able to know anything about. And unfortunately, those missions are way off yet. Yeah, so we, we have had some samples brought back from a Japanese mission, brought samples back from one asteroid, and we think there's two more going. Well, there are two more going at the moment, but they're bringing back, you know, grams, micrograms of material, mm -hmm. very small amounts. The great thing about meteorites is we have kilograms to, to even tons. We have some iron meteorites that are huge. And so, you know, for geochemists and people that work in laboratories, having large amounts of sample mass is great because it means we can ask the rocks different questions. The largest sample size I seem to remember was about the size of a basketball from the Antarctic, is that right? That was, so um, in the previous meteorite hunting trips I've been on, the largest one that we recovered was about the size of a basketball, which is, you know, pretty big. Mm. Most of them were probably about three centimetres in size. I think the biggest Antarctic one is probably about a metre in diameter they've recovered, and that, that proved quite difficult to get back you know, out of the continent on the back of a snowmobile to ship it back to America to study. Um, but there are even bigger meteorites. So there's one in Namibia, which is metres in size, and that's still in the ground, so they couldn't even get it out of the ground. So, oh, wow. And every day there's even dust-sized particles falling. So we have not meteorites as such, but dust particles that have fallen through our atmosphere, similar processes that are accumulating, and they're down to, you know, the thickness of a human hair, so really tiny. Well, that leads me on to something else. Is there a meteorite size that's too small? Would you ever look at one and go, I think I can find one that's bigger? <laughs> we always want bigger ones, but no. So, um, so no, there are the, even the very small ones tell us interesting things. So, actually, a lot of the dust particles that we collect, the interplanetary dust particles, probably come from maybe cometary origins or from asteroids that are very friable, so ones that break up easily in the atmosphere. So actually the small ones give us insights to the types of asteroids we have that, that never would survive large chunks entering the atmosphere. So they're beautiful in their own right and their own way. Now, we talked a moment ago, just very briefly touched on the fact you've been to the Antarctic. So you've been twice so far with US ANSMET trips and you're going once more for a UK-led one in 2018. Yeah. So... Uh, What's so special about the Antarctic? What makes it such a fertile ground for finding meteorites? So they've been doing systematic missions to Antarctica since the late 1970s. The Japanese um, teams, American teams, the ANSMET team, um, and there's been European teams, some Italians have gone down before. And we've recovered about 35,000 meteorites, so a huge amount of samples that have been collected. And the Americans are really great in that they take international scientists with them. So actually, I'm just one of several Brits that have been lucky enough to be selected to go down with them. So there's been people from the Natural History Museum and other... UK universities. But um, looking forward, um, you know, the UK has never done its own meteorite hunt and British Antarctic Survey service a large part of Antarctica where we think there are certain regions that are probably going to be quite good for meteorites to move through the ice and to be collected and therefore this new funding um, that my colleague Jeff Everett, who's the principal investigator at the University of Manchester was just secured funding to go and test an intriguing mathematical hypothesis. So the UK effort, although we're going to find meteorites that are sitting on the surface of the ice, we're also going to take a sneaky peek beneath the ice to see if there are rocks trapped within. And that's not really been done before. Now, I heard that this UK lab mission is going to involve a landmine detector. Yes. Is that what that is? So we roped in our friends in the University of Manchester who are in the engineering department who, on a day-to-day -day basis, specialise in landmine detection and they do you know, amazing worth, worthwhile things going out to detect landmines and recover them and develop the technology to improve landmine detectability. Mm -hmm. And given that a lot of meteorites carry iron, they're metallic, 
um, we have suggested to them it might be a good idea that they could try turning their device to a different question. And so now they are designing a system that is going to become ruggedized. And by that, I mean that is we're able to drag behind us on skidoos a lot of them. It's going to be a monstrous effort to get this stuff down to Antarctica. And we're going to spend every day driving up and down the ice with these um, metal detecting devices to see if we can find meteorites that are trapped just with under the surface, maybe down to about 50 centimetres. And the next year and a half, the clever engineers are perfecting this technology and getting it all to work. So that's their bag. And, uh, you know, it's intriguing to see it all develop and it's very exciting. But they're going to drag it behind like a plough. A that... little bit like a plough, not too dissimilar. So um, uh, it, down in Antarctica, there is a lot of science experiments deployed off the back of skidoos such as ground penetrating radar. Mm -hmm. And Bass are really good at doing this and taking, you know, complicated scientific experiments redesigning them, making sure they don't fall apart, making sure that when you're in the cold in Antarctica, you can fix them very easily because there's nothing worse than you having to take your gloves off and trying to do maintenance in the field. And I, I'm, it's all hopefully going to come together in a beautiful uh, design. Now, you just mentioned something else I wanted to ask you. You're not actually allowed to touch any of the meteorites you find. Is that right? So, uh, no, because we could potentially contaminate them, particularly with our grubby fingers after not having washed for a long period of time in a tent. No, no, that's not true. So uh, so we we have to use specialised, sterilised equipment to collect all the meteorites. There's a procedure to make sure that they are collected and kept pristine because um, some of the science questions we want to address by studying these samples involve uh, analysis of organic rich materials, which tells us about um, the volatility of different planetary bodies. And we would like to keep them as clean as possible for that reason. So um, sterilised tongs straight into a special collection bag, sealed up, and then we don't... Um, um, touch them until we unwrap them when they're back in a clean laboratory. So there's no analysis at all that takes place out there? It's... No, um, so the, that's a really good point. So no, but one of the things we may be trialling is once we put stuff in the bag, there are techniques where we can um, use the magnetic signature of the meteorites to give us an indication about what type it is. But that can all be done through a plastic bag, so we don't have to do anything in the field. I see. So when you're out in Antarctica, how long do you spend out there? So it depends on how good the weather is and right. how good the logistics are. So um, Ansmet, who go each year, you know, they've had some fantastic field seasons, six weeks, every day they've been out meteorite hunting, recovering samples and come back with a thousand in the bag at the end of the field season. Other field seasons, it's just dreadful weather. There's winds, there's, you know, snow. I was going to say rain, there's not rain, there's snow, driving snow, and you don't get a lot of field time. So on the second mission I went on, we got 63 meteorites, which doesn't sound like an awful lot, but they're wonderfully interesting and they're you know those 63 they turn out to be some really good ones and that's because we had lots of bad weather so for the upcoming missions we're not quite sure how long they're going to be yet that's also in the planning stages and in part it depends on the logistics and what else is going on in the field at the time but probably on the scale of weeks so we'll be okay. there for christmas we'll be there for the new year we'll see the new year in antarctica what's christmas like in such a remote location oh uh, cold no <laughs> <laughs> cold and windy as i guess as it is someplace in the uk no it's uh it, it, if you're working it's just like any other work day so we did um on the seasons i went before a get together with all the other team members and we celebrate in the evening and we all exchange presents and um you know we try to because you're away from home you're away from family and so the guys that are on your field team with you are your family when you're in the field and coming together and having a celebration is a really important thing to do i'm just curious what's the hardest part of a mission like that both in terms of science and in terms of that human element of being out there yeah uh human element i don't know i loved it i the times i've been down before i i'm yeah, it was just an amazing experience because you don't have to worry about all the normal stuff. All you have to focus on is getting up, eating, putting your clothes on, not getting cold, 
eating a bit more and then a bit more, collecting meteorites, repeat until bored. And it's a, you know, it's a really simple experience and you're in the most beautiful place. It is cold. Some days your toes feel like they are going to disappear. Um, primitive bathroom facilities is always an interesting thing. Keeping clean, um, you know, baby white. It's, you know, which is that, why you can't touch the meteorites. Exactly, which is why you can't touch the meteorites. So there are, there are you know, washing my... Actually, you know, the worst thing, not being able to wash my hair was horrific for a long time. So, the, yeah, the first shower you get back into the base is the best thing. Um, but, and being away from family as well is hard. But you do have a satellite phone, so you can phone home particularly important for Christmas Day. Exactly, yeah. Catherine, thank you so much for taking time to talk to no us. No problem. Okay, so I'm here with Anna Scaife, who is the head of the Jodrell Bank Interferometry Centre of Excellence. Thanks very much for joining me at, at Blue Dot. No problem. Um, and we've just come from, from your talk, which was about giant radio galaxies, but I wanted to just first of all touch upon um, this, this word that's in, in, your, in your job title, interferometry. <laughs> Can you explain what that actually is? Yeah, so um, interferometry is where you use the interference patterns um, from different receivers to, to make images. And it's very important for radio astronomy. Uh, radio waves are very long. If you don't have a very big telescope, you have very poor resolution on the sky. And interferometry is one of the ways we use to solve that. So instead of making a telescope that's 100 miles across, we can simply have two telescopes that are separated by 100 miles and link them together. And that's the beauty of interferometry. Okay, so it's kind of the way that like a, a telescope array works? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and so your, your talk was on giant radio galaxies, so I, I guess we should, we should discuss that. What are giant radio galaxies? And <laughs> are they the same as, as, say, for example, like a, a nice spiral galaxy, like, like the Whirlpool? Okay. Uh, so the answer is no, completely <laughs> not. So M51, the Whirlpool, um, is a, a spiral galaxy, a star-forming galaxy. It's much more like our own galaxy, the Milky Way. It's the, it's the kind of galaxy that you could go and live in. Um, giant radio galaxies are the opposite. They're very violent, very energetic galaxies, and you don't really want to be anywhere close to the center of them because they have a supermassive black hole spewing out jets of radio emission. Okay, so pr presumably when we look at them, they have a very, very bright center as, as a result of that radiation? So in fact, the brightest thing about giant radio galaxies are the jets of emission. So the jets of emission are filled with electrons moving close to the speed of light, and they produce very bright, in, in radio terms, um, emission. The, the central region can actually be quite faint, and sometimes you can't see it at all. And th there was a great moment during your talk when you, you kind of said, can you see the polar bear? And you showed us a picture of a polar bear, <laughs> but then you zoomed in on the polar, bear, polar bear's coat and said, can you still see the polar bear? How, how, does that, how does that analogy kind of relate to? So giant radio galaxies can be absolutely huge. One of the, the new giant radio galaxies that we discovered recently with the LOFAR telescope is so big on the sky, it's twice the size of the moon. And when something is that big, you have to have an equally large field of view to see the structure. And we don't have that field of view normally. Um, so if you don't have the field of view, you just see like, you know, a little patch of the polar bear's coat. You can't tell what the complete form is. Mm -hmm. And the same is true of giant radio galaxies. So why do we study them? What can we learn about them? Giant radio galaxies are interesting for a number of reasons. Um, the first one is understanding the evolution of galaxies themselves. Giant radio galaxies are thought to be the last stages of the evolution of these radio sources. And so when we look at giant radio galaxies, we're really pushing the old age of a radio galaxy and, and seeing what happens to it at the end. The other reason that they're really interesting is that we can use them as probes of 
the cosmic web of structure in the universe around us because they extend really far out into that structure and we can use their emission passing through other things as a sort of a, a secondary probe, which is really exciting. Absolutely incredible. And we were, we were kind of, uh, you, you were talking about uh, galaxy collisions during your talk. How, mm. how, how is that relevant to the field? Well, so giant radio galaxies and, and dragons, um, which are double radio sources associated with galactic nuclei, they're hosted by giant elliptical galaxies. And elliptical galaxies are formed by the collision of normal star-forming galaxies. Okay, when, a, when two galaxies collide, do, does that mean that the, the stars within those galaxies collide themselves? Um, I don't know if they collide head-on. They certainly interact, mm -hmm. um, as does everything else, the gas, the dust, it all gets stripped off, and you get these huge tails of emission that stream behind colliding galaxies as the, the, the gravity sort of drags them around. And is, is this the sort of thing that we can actually observe happening in, in real time? Yeah, so we see this in, in several places in the universe, in fact, several, many places in the universe. You can um, observe it in lots of different wave bands. The radio is particularly good for looking at it because we can use the hydrogen line to see the tidal tails very clearly and you get absolutely beautiful structures of galaxies pirouetting around each other. And um, you, you, you work at uh, the... Uh, Jodrell Bank. So is, is there somewhere that um, our listeners can kind of find out more about this, about this field? Yeah, come and look at our website. Come and visit us. Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre is open all the time. Thank you very much for speaking to me, Anna. No problem. Uh, so I have the great pleasure of being joined by uh, a CERN scientist, uh, Professor Chris Parks, who's the deputy spokesperson for the Large Hadron Collider Beauty um, at CERN, as I said. Um, Chris, thanks very much for joining me at, at uh, Blue Dot. Thanks very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I work with uh, from the University of Manchester and also with CERN, as you say. The reason that we're speaking really is because there's, there's been some exciting news over the past few days. Um, but I suppose before we get on to that, it would be worth kind of touching upon the work that's actually done at CERN because I think a lot of people, including myself, kind of struggle to understand what it is and, and why it's so important. Uh, Yes, so, so at CERN we have um, a number of accelerators, but our largest one is the one which maybe uh, your listeners have heard of before, the Large Hadron Collider, which is the most powerful particle accelerator uh, operating in the world at the moment. Uh, it's a 27-kilometer uh, long ring all the way around the circumference, uh, and we collide protons uh, that are going in one direction around the ring with protons that are going in the other direction around the ring at four points around the ring. And at these four points, we've got four large experiments. And uh, we study the properties of the particles that are produced in the collisions of these protons. Uh, so one of the most famous things that has come out of the Large Hadron Collider that maybe uh, some of your listeners are familiar with uh, is the discovery of the Higgs boson, which was about five years ago now, almost exactly five years ago. Uh, but there are many other discoveries that are coming out of the Large Hadron Collider also. And what's this latest um, discovery about? Uh, so, the, so the latest discovery uh, is of a particle which is called the Xi-CC++. It's not a particularly snappy name, uh, but it's a very interesting particle. Uh, it's a particle that's been long predicted, uh, but we announced yesterday the discovery uh, of this particle. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, uh, technically, it's something called a baryon. Um, a baryon is a particle that contains three quarks. Uh, so the most common examples of those are the proton and the neutron. 
which I guess most people are familiar with, which make up the nucleus of all our atoms. Uh, and this is another type of baryon. Like a proton or a neutron, it contains three quarks. But what's particularly special about this one is it's the first one that contains two heavier types of quarks. So all the normal matter around us is made of some light types of quarks. And this a baryon that we found contains two of these heavier types of quarks. We already knew about some baryons which contained one type of quark. So if you like, the proton and neutron and its friends are the ground floor of a building. The first floor of the building contains these particles that have one heavy quark in them. And what we've just done is put the second floor on the building. So if you want, it's the penthouse proton. <laughs> and so how was this uh, discovery made? Are, are you able to kind of... Um... Are you able to kind of go through that with us? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, so, so what happens um, in the Large Hadron Collider is that we collide protons, and really at these energies we're colliding the things of which the proton is made. So the proton is made of quarks, uh, plus some things called gluons, and we're colliding those constituents. And out of that um, comes a whole array of new particles. Some of these particles only live for very short periods of time, such as this one that we've just discovered, but it then decays into other particles, and those particles fly through our detector, and our detector uh, is composed of uh, a number of different sections, and those different sections measure different properties of the particles. So by putting all this picture together about the information that we get of these particles flying through it, we can reconstruct the property of the original particle that was produced. So for example, we can uh, reconstruct what the mass is of this short-lived particle that then decayed into the other ones that we actually observe. And if we make a plot which shows the mass of the observations that we're making, we get a bump in this um, mass plot at the mass of this new particle. Okay, I, I was at a talk earlier on today kind of talking about the uh, square kilometer array, and one of the points they were made was that um, you could essentially divide the universe into three, and a very small, maybe 5% of it would be baryons, and that's basically what we can observe, and everything else is either dark matter or dark energy. So how does, how does this discovery kind of affect that model, if, if at all? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very interesting. So, so yes, so, so this particle is firmly part of that baryonic matter that we actually see in the visible universe around us. But you're absolutely right. The evidence from um, the astrophysical uh, astronomy experiments is that there is large components, other components of the energy in the universe. So one of them, as you mentioned, is dark matter. <laughs> And dark matter is called dark matter because we haven't got a clue what it is. We don't actually know what particle is making up dark matter. Um, so one of the hopes that might come out of the next runs of the Large Hadron Collider is that we actually find evidence for new particles and that these new particles could actually be particles that could make up dark matter. Now, this one that we've just discovered today, uh, yesterday, certainly isn't. Uh, the one that we've just discovered it's part of normal baryonic matter. It's part of a state that would be predicted. But the sorts of experiments that we're doing um, at CERN are indeed looking for candidates for dark matter. You, you, you said that the, um, the particle that has been discovered um, was, was 
was previously theorized to, to exist. That's right, yes. So there, there must be other, other particles that we have theorized and that we are also looking for? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And that, that, that's an interesting thing. If we go back to my analogy of this being the second floor in the building, um, indeed, this is the first particle in that second floor, but it will have friends and relations, and now we can hunt for those as well. So how, how does it kind of affect your research is it kind of business as usual with regards to what you're doing at CERN, or, or just, is this kind of um, uh, a game-changing epoch? Uh, it, it's an interesting state, um, this new particle, uh, because th this new particle has um, properties which allow us to test our theories in a different way from, uh, from previous particles that we have. So, so this particle, because it contains two heavy quarks, th 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 there's a nice analogy with... Um, um, with uh, binary stars, if you go to astronomy. In, in, um, in astronomy, you can have binary stars where you have two stars that are orbiting each other, and then you can have a planet which is orbiting those, which is only loosely bound to the binary star. And this is a little bit like a particle physics analogy at the complete other scale. Um, it's two heavy quarks, so those are like your stars in the binary star system, and then you've got one light quark um, also. So it allows us to test our theory in ways in which um, the other baryons that we have from lower down in the building, to mix my analogies, <laughs> um, don't allow us to. So, so the particular force that it's probing is a force which is called the strong force, um, and that's the force which holds um, the quarks together inside the proton and the neutron inside the nucleus of the atoms. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, um, it's probably also worth touching on the uh, standard model because it, that's kind of something that this affects. I mean, can you explain what, what the standard model is and, and how this actually um, affects that? Yes, the, the, the standard model is our underlying uh, theory of particle physics. Uh, it has a set of particles in it, which are all the particles that we know about. And it has um, uh, force carriers, which carry the fundamental forces. It includes the three out of the four fundamental forces that we know about, uh, which are the strong force that I just mentioned. That's the one responsible for holding the quarks together. It includes something called the weak force, which is the one responsible for radioactive decay. Uh, and it includes the electromagnetic force, which people will be familiar with from uh, electricity and light and all the uh, electromagnetic effects that we know about. There is, of course, a fourth force, which it doesn't include, which is gravity. And that's the interesting mix between what we're doing in particle physics and what the astronomers are doing, where they're mostly probing things to do with gravitational force, and we're mostly probing things to do with the other three forces. And actually, theoretically, the two pictures are not well joined up together. Mm. Yeah, because we still don't really know what, what gravity is, do we? No, that, that's right. And from a particle physics point of view, this is very difficult to probe. Um, from a particle physics point of view, we really probe the other three forces, which are the, the forces which have the highest strength at the small scale. At the large scale, um, then the other three forces um, are neutralized, and then gravity takes over. It's a much weaker force, but it's important, obviously, at the large-scale structure in astronomy. So there's a nice um, uh, complementarity between what particle physicists do and what astronomers do. And, of course, ultimately, we would like a unified theory which joins up the whole picture.
So we have this standard model in particle physics, which is an extremely well-tested theory, and where there was one particle that was missing from this standard model, and that was the Higgs boson that was discovered um, at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and the sort of states that I'm talking about, uh, like the ZICC, are states where you take these fundamental particles from the standard model and you join them together in different ways. So, for example, the proton and the neutron uh, are made by joining up some of these quarks in the standard model together. And the new particle that's been discovered is by taking other quarks in the uh, from the standard model and joining them up in a different way. So we're... we're re you could really say that we've kind of taken taken one more step to properly understanding the the the, uh, the universe around us. Oh, we're, we're we're trying to probe um, these uh, these fundamental forces and test this underlying theory of the standard model uh, by doing these experiments to test whether the particles behave in the way that we would expect them to from our theory. And of course, the big hope is that they don't, because then that tells us that our theory is missing something, that we need to add some new particles, need to add something else to our theory. And the hope is that maybe even some of these puzzles from astronomy are related to puzzles we have in particle physics, and that we could find um, the effects of some new particle. And that new particle could be involved with dark matter. Incredible. It's very exciting. But thank, thank you very much for joining me and, and also for explaining it so well. Been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm joined now by Mark McCorkran, Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at ESA. Thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure. Um, I just want to ask you the big question straight off. Where is the most exciting place in the solar system right now? <laughs> That's a really good question. You know, I mean, usually the question is asked, where's your favourite planet or something like that, to which my always answer is the one we're sitting on, right? I mean, all the others are very interesting and there's a huge amount to be learned from them, but there's a, you know, this is the one we live on. So if you, if you were to ask where's the most exciting place in the solar system today, you know, what's going on? We've got satellites around Mars. We've got two of them there at the moment. Uh, we've got missions elsewhere in the solar system. We have a lander sitting on a comet. We've got a spacecraft sitting on a comet, no longer operating. Most exciting place. It has to be sitting here with you, I suppose. Um, in terms of life on other planets, then, in that sense, where would it be? Well, you know, the, the sort of conventional thinking, and, it, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that thinking, is that you follow the water yes. to find life. And there are lots of places in the solar system where there's water. The Earth, obviously, Mars has a history of having had liquid water on the surface three and a half, four billion years ago. And there's on the order of a million cubic kilometers of water ice under the surface. The other places which are really exciting in that regard are the icy moons, both of Jupiter and Saturn. And they have deep oceans under thick ice crusts. Um, and in some cases, in particular Europa, for example, and maybe Enceladus, which Europa's around Jupiter and Enceladus around Saturn, they may be in contact with water, uh, sorry, with uh, rock right at the base of the water ocean. And there may be even volcanism at the base of those oceans. So heat, which could then lead to mineral liberation and perhaps even like on the Earth at the Black Smokers, maybe life there. But for me, in a weird sense, finding life on Mars, for example, there's the danger that it might actually be the same as life on Earth. Now, what do I mean by that? Mars and Earth are connected. They're connected by meteorites. 
by impacts of objects onto the surface of the Earth and Mars, you can actually spray material out into space, and that material later on will land on other locations in the solar system. So we have Martian meteorites, rocks which came from Mars, landed on the surface of the Earth. We already have Martian rocks. So there's at least that possibility that there was sharing of material from the early solar system, maybe primordial life of you know the very earliest kind of microbes could have been shared between the planets so we go to mars to search for life there is at least the possibility it will be just the same as the life we find on earth albeit evolved differently over time so here's a real place where it might be different though and that's titan how so so titan is one of the moons of saturn and titan has a very dense atmosphere and that atmosphere is made of hydrocarbons ethane and methane and there's a kind of hydrological cycle on Titan. So you actually have seasonally, as Saturn goes around and changes its orientation with respect to the sun, you get seasons on Titan as well. So you have summer, you have autumn, you have winter, and you have spring. And there are times in that cycle where you see rain moving, rain clouds moving across the surface of Titan, rain falls to the surface, runs down little rivulets, gathers in, in seas, oceans, but not of water of liquid hydrocarbons. So incredibly cold, but still liquid. And the question is, could we conceive of life forms which might actually have evolved in that very different physical environment? And that would, you know, by definition, be incredibly diff different to the life we have on Earth. So there are many people who would actually really like to go and look for life on Titan. Because it would be so different. It would be so different. And, and philosophically, what's important about that, again, is you know, if you do find life on Mars and it turns out to be the same as life on Earth, in its origin, that's of course exciting, but it doesn't answer the fundamental question about life, which is can it form twice in the universe independently? That's the big question, because if twice within the same solar system you can get what we call life, reproducing systems, then it means it must be everywhere. It must be easy to do it elsewhere in the universe. Now, all that being said, I wanted to touch on one of ESA's upcoming major missions, which is Bepi Colombo heading back to Mercury. And it feels like for years we've been pushing outwards ever since Voyager and you know, major projects in the past, say um, Rosetta spacecraft, we keep going outwards and now we're looking back. And Mercury certainly isn't a place where you naturally expect life, so what's the draw? Well, there's, there's many other things to be learned about the solar system other than just life alone. <clears throat> the reason we haven't been to Mercury very often, there's only been two spacecraft that have been to Mercury in the past, Mariner 10 in the 1970s and NASA's Messenger in the, the, the 2000s. And the reason is, it's actually harder to get to the inner solar system than it is to get even to Pluto, because it's all about energetics. It's all about rockets. You would think you might be able to slide downhill towards the sun very nicely, use the gravity, the pull of the sun to get you down towards Mercury. You could, but you wouldn't be able to stop when you got there. You just fly straight. You go straight past. So you've actually got to, to, to get to Mercury. You could get there in three months if you, did, if you did what's called a Hohmann transfer orbit. You basically put a big thrust at the beginning to put you on an elliptical orbit, which then has its um, highest point from the sun where we are and its lowest point by Mercury, effectively. You could do that, but when you got there, then you'd have to use a huge amount of thrust to slow down again. And that means a bigger rocket than we have, and you'd have no spacecraft on the top of it. So the way we're going to do it, and the way everybody has done it in the past, is actually use flybys of other planets. The Earth, once, Venus, twice, and Mercury itself, 
six times. Now, that doesn't just mean going next to it and flying past it like you're in orbit. It means going whizzing past it and then going in orbit around the sun, and letting Mercury catch up with you, doing it again, slowing down a bit, doing it again, and doing it six times until you then finally, at the very end, use a little bit of a chemical rocket and put yourself into orbit around Mercury. So it's incredibly difficult to get to Mercury, which is why we haven't been there many times. But it is nevertheless very exciting as a, as a planet. If you think about the sort of big question, how did the solar system form? How was it born? You've got to create a model which ends up reproducing what we see today. And what's often hardest in models is to reproduce the extremes, the things which are furthest away and the things which are closest in, the highest temperatures, the lowest temperatures. And Mercury is the nearest planet to the sun. It's the hottest one uh, on the surface without the greenhouse effect of Venus, which makes it hotter, but naturally hottest planet. Um, and it's weird. It has a magnetic field. It shouldn't. It shouldn't have a magnetic field at all. There's a solid iron core. It should be solid by now. It should have frozen. It's a small world, only 40% the size of the Earth. And yet, it seems to be liquid on the interior, generating a dynamo, generating a magnetic field. How the hell does that happen? Now, you, you mentioned those difficult environments, and I think one of the things you uh, said in your talk was it's a good place to cook a pizza. <laughs> well, yeah, this is one of the huge challenges. The challenge getting there is really difficult. And just let me say, you know, we not only use the flybys, we also use um, ion engines, which... Uh, you xenon gas, you strip the electrons off, and then you accelerate with a high electric field. You accelerate the xenon ions out the back and you use that as a thruster. Well, those, those will be on for two years out of the seven-year journey to help us. But once you even get there, then Mercury's really hard work because on one side of you, you have the sun. And you're a third of the distance, roughly, from the Earth to the sun once you get to Mercury. That makes the sun roughly ten times brighter. And so you've got that incredibly intense solar flux on one side of your spacecraft. And on the other side, you have Mercury filling your sky. And Mercury, at its hottest, at midday at the equator, gets up to 430 degrees centigrade. And that's the pizza oven. You know, if, as I said in my talk, if you, have your, if you turn your, your, your ordinary oven up to 200, and you, you, you're not even close to what it takes to cook a real a Neapolitan pizza. 450 degrees is what you're trying to achieve. But that problem is you've got heat on one side, heat on the other. And you've got to maintain the interior of your spacecraft down to 50 degrees centigrade. And how are you managing to achieve that? Well, you draw the heat away through what call heat pipes. There's no, there's no um, convection, there's no atmosphere to take it away. So you run pipes with liquid, ammonia, and they run along the side electronics. Then you take that, it's warmed up, you take it to what we... It's what we call radiators, and it's the same as a radiator in your house where it effectively is a warm liquid giving off heat, and we radiate that into space. But if we radiate it towards the sun, that's pointless. There's a big <laughs> hot thing giving us energy back. If we radiate it towards Mercury, big hot thing giving it back. So we actually have to radiate into a very narrow range of angles between the sun on one side and Mercury on the other. So that gap in between, looking down away from both objects. So our radiators are really weird. They're mirrors on one side, which try to reflect the sunlight and mercury light. On the other side, well, you would think they would be black, you know, the best color for radiating. In fact, they're, they're white, matte white, because that still, it looks black in the infrared, which is what matters. That's where you're giving the heat away. So we have an incredibly complex system for managing the thermal uh, environment of the spacecraft. You know, living in the pizza oven, how do you stay cool? And, and we think we've cracked it. So just... We talked about the spacecraft. Once Bepi Colombo arrives at Mercury, what are the big questions you hope it's going to answer? 
Well, the one I mentioned before about <clears throat> this magnetic field, which was discovered by Mariner, Mariner 10, back 74, 75. Why is that? What is there? What's, what's special about the core? What's wrong with our models? And one option possibly is this sulfur in the core, which might uh, effectively change the melting point of iron so that it's still liquid at the lo lower temperatures. So there's that, and we'll be measuring that with two spacecraft, our European Mercury uh, uh, planetary orbiter, which has magnetically sensitive instruments on board, and our partner spacecraft, the Japanese uh, Mercury magnetospheric orbiter. So we'll be in different orbits, and we'll be sampling the magnetic field, trying to work out what the structure is, uh, and trying to probe the interior as well by measuring the gravi gravitational attraction of Mercury. A very sens sensitive gravity sensors on board. And as we fly past Mercury, it'll tell us what the structure of the interior is. So we're really trying to probe inside without drilling a hole and looking. And then you have the surface, and the surface is much like the surface of our moon. It's got craters from things hitting it. It's got mare, what we call the seas on the moon, which are actually flooded lava plains. And it seems to have some very low volcanoes, uh, which aren't active today, but may have been in the past. And then there are weird places which look like sort of crumpled up surface structure, hollows full of slightly weird volatile materials, things that should have disappeared in the, from the heat of the sun. Are they coming out from under the crust and still filling these little craters up? Or is it residual material from having been hit by comets and asteroids landing on the surface and it hasn't all been burned away yet? So there's a lot we don't know about Mercury, even with the previous two missions having studied it. Launch in October 2018. That's that's the plan at the and moment. And then a seven-year journey, is that right? Uh, seven and a half, yes. Seven, uh, seven and a quarter. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we might get some of the answers to these questions around 2025. Exactly. We're scheduled to arrive, if we launch nominally 5th of October next year, uh, and of course, you can't launch any random day towards Mercury because you've got to have all the planets lined up that you're going to use for these flybys. So if we don't make it for October, and we're on schedule, so we don't think a problem. The next one would be April in the following year, so there's quite a long delay. Um, so yes, if we launch in October 2018, we get there in December 2025. We will have been past Mercury a few times, so we'll have done some science along the way but we don't go into orbit until 2025. So yes, I, I hate to say it, it just doesn't seem possible, but I will be retired by that point. So I'll be watching from a bath chair somewhere, you know. Maybe keeping tabs on it. <laughs> well, I hope so, I hope so, yes. Um, finally, one last thing I wanted to ask you on a tangent was, in the light of the Brexit vote, what does that mean for the European Space Agency? In a formal sense, there's no link between the European Union as a structure and European Space Agency. We have 22 member states in ESA, um, so that's fewer than are in the EU, but two of our member states are not EU members, Norway and Switzerland. So we're, we're largely overlapping structures, but not in any, formal, in any formal way. So in that sense, it doesn't affect us. There are two programs in ESA, however, which are directly funded by the EU. We're effectively the agency building things. And one of those is the Galileo system. And these are new um, navigation satellites. So everybody knows GPS. Galileo is effectively an upgraded European version of that. Uh, and we are building and flying those and operating them uh, for the European Union. And once the UK... If it does leave, and who knows at this point, if it does leave the European Union, then that, the relationship with that system, and in particular the industries which are building those satellites, uh, they're actually being built in the UK at the moment. So where does the UK go if, or that industry go, if the UK is no longer part of the EU paying for them? They won't be able to get the contracts. Uh, at least you would think. <clears throat> and the other system we have is a system called Copernicus. 
and Copernicus is a series of Earth observation satellites. So monitoring the Earth's environment, uh, salinity of the oceans, uh, the water moisture in the atmosphere, the speed of wind, that kind of, it, it, it's useful data in between meteorology satellites and a pure science satellite. And European Union pays for that as well. So in that sense, that poses problems for those two programs. Hopefully, regardless of what happens, we can have more of those collaborative projects and more successes we've seen with Rosetta, Gaia, and the like. Well, in the near term, we've, the missions we've picked in our program, uh, European Space Agency, go out to 2034. We have a whole slate of missions. The UK is a strong, important part of the European Space Agency. And, uh, you know, as a Brit, I say that, but I say that because I see it every day. What British industry does, what British scientists do is vital. But, you know, that kind of, the, the, some of the funding comes from the EU for the science that is exploited from our missions. We don't pay for that, but the EU does. So where, where does that leave the UK? So there is a good future ahead, but I'm, I'm worried. Mark McCochran, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. So that's all from us at the Blue Dot Festival here at Jodrell Bank. Um, thanks to everyone uh, who took the time out to speak to us. Um, it's been a busy weekend, and obviously thanks to everyone who um, organised the festival and made it possible. Um, it's been fantastic, hasn't it? Yeah, Kev, what, what was your highlight, would you say? Oh, oh mine was from um, Mark McCochran's talk. Mark McCochran from ESA. He was telling us about um, Comet 67P, and they found this, uh, this cliff, 100 metres high, and because the gravity is so much uh, less on 60p in Earth, if you were to jump off that, like base jumping, it would take you 20 minutes to get to the bottom. Almost safe. <laughs> that was great. It was a nice little, and, little uh, nugget of fact. And the pixies were good as well. Oh, my God, they weren't. They just... <laughs> um, if you would like to know more about the Blue Dot Festival, you can visit their website, which is discoverthebluedot.com. If you would like to hear more from BBC Sky Night magazine, you can go to our website, www.skynightmagazine.com, or by our print and digital editions. Um, that's all from us. Yep, yeah, it's been good. Thanks for listening.